0: Well, will you look at that, it's episode 54 of the Planet LP podcast. Hello there, friends. I am Ted Asur-Gadu, your host of this endeavor that I started back in January 2021. And after some permutations, it's evolved into what it is now, a music geek talking to fellow travelers. In this episode, it's kind of a personal one, but I think one that many can relate to, and that's life-changing albums. These are records that had or have a really deep effect on you, albums that inspired you, changed your perspective of the world, or became companions of sorts through your life's journey. And I have a couple of returning champs waiting in the wings to share their life-changing albums with you as well. If you're listening to this podcast on an app, you don't need me to run down the list of podcast apps where Planet LP is available all I ask is that if you like what you hear, let others know where they can listen. And if you want to get social on the socials, Instagram and Twitter, we're at uh, the Planet LP. Facebook, it's just PlanetLP. And if you want to email me, I'm at Ted at PlanetLP.com. righty then, let's get on with the show. Life-changing albums. As I said at the outset, these are records that can be deeply personal. In some cases, these records may be more important to you than the artists who created them. Well, to get this thing started, I wanted to welcome my guests to the Planet LP Podcast. If you listened to episode 53 about TV theme songs, you'll remember that at the close of the episode, you heard my guest say he'd love to come back on the pod, quote, anytime. So I took him up on it. Back for another round of fun is Scott Malkus. Hi there, Scott. Hey, Ted. Good to be back, man. Yeah, Scott and I know each other from being a part of the OG Pop Dose staff back in 2008. In addition to being a writer on Pop Dose, Scott wrote and directed a feature film called King's Highway, which IMDb describes as a young man in his early 20s discovers his first love is getting married, so he drops everything to travel across California and stop her, With no money and no car, he discovers life, love, and secrets from his past. In 2012, he published a memoir called Basement Tapes, which I read and loved. He's the writer and co-creator of the comic book Wendover. Currently, he works as a producer for Cartoon Network. That's quite a resume you got
1: there. It sounds much more important than everybody really (laughs) is. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I seem
1: so. I seem so accomplished. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, we
0: just read back to you. It is an accomplishment. Come on, Now, my well, thanks, second man. returning. Yeah, my second returning champ is Jeff Giles. Hey there, Jeff. Hey Ted. Hey Scott. Jeff, good to hear from you, man. Yeah, Je- Jeff and I have known each other before Pop Dose became a thing. We first met in 2002 when he was a student in my Intro to American Government class. In California. in I did not know that. You didn't know that? yet Yeah. That's, awesome. That's how we met. In 08, he started Pop Dose and dragged my lazy butt over there to write. We've remained connected ever since. Jeff has a long and creative career. In addition to being a very talented writer, critic of music, movies, books, and TV, he also had a music label, released an album featuring original songs penned by him and others. Wrote a book called Landview in the Afternoon, an oral history of one life to live, and is currently shopping around his first novel, Langley Powell and the Society for the Defense of the Mundane. Jeff's day job is, and I go dot, 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 because I don't even know. What do you do now?
2: Oh, man, this is so boring. We don't need to talk about what I do. <laughs> is it mundane? <laughs> <laughs>
1: It can't be as mundane as being a producer. Come
2: on, uh, I, I like the way you describe my. Uh, yeah, I like the way you describe my 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 uh, my creative and, and uh, professional past. So oh, why's that? It, it, just like Scott said, it it, it makes it sound uh, so much more exciting.
0: It is exciting. I'm I'm always I'm impressed by both of you guys and your accomplishments. I think that you've done a lot when you're doing it. Probably you're just like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all right. And then somebody reads it back to you, and you're like, oh, wait, I guess I. Did We've
2: do done something. a few things. Yeah, yeah. Few things,
1: a, yeah. I th- I think what it is is like in the heat of the moment, you're like, "This is it! I've made it!" And then yeah. Yeah, when it doesn't work out as you'd hoped it had, it then it becomes like, "Ah, oh, that's that thing I tried a few years ago." Great, no, <laughs> right,
0: right? And then somebody reminds you, "Hey, you remember that thing you did a few years ago? That was pretty good, really."
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm still waiting for someone to say that to me. <laughs> just kidding.
0: <laughs> I think what you do is very good. I really like it. so hey, I I, it. I, what, did, did Wendover conclude because I got the first issue.
1: No, our, our <laughs> artist flaked on us and no, then man. we could never get another artist. So we we wound up writing it as a, a TV pilot mm-hmm. and, uh, and I got some traction for about a year and a half with an agent and then the agent switched agencies to a big thing and then you know we got left in the dust. You
0: could have gone to the Nevada Film Whatever Commission and said, "I will single handedly revitalize Wendover by filming the episodes here." Yeah. So we we'll bring bringing the crew. Look, we'll be shopping and eating and dining and you know and and renting and and
2: yeah. Is we'll, there any we'll be- shopping or eating or there anything to be done in Wendover? I only remember not gas station.
1: Not much. I've I've been I there. I think it's well the the, the 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 fascination with that. City was that, like, there's two Wendovers, there's two sides, you know, and they're kind of split in half by the states. So on, mm-hmm. the, on the Utah side, you have this kind of rundown community uh, struggling to get by, and on the Nevada side, you have a thriving casino community. And uh, they're, you know, even though they're divided by a state line, they're all they're both really connected. So that that always fascinated me, and uh, it just seemed like a ripe for uh, some kind of mysterious horror storytelling all stories have to have
0: conflict at some point to get people excited about it. And I could just see it. You've got the sort of purity of the saints on the one side, but they're also resentful of all the money that the casino people have. Ooh, you should, you should revisit that idea and start shopping.
1: You know, I've actually been toying with the idea of doing like an audio podcast of it. Like a dramatic reading. Yeah. I mean, I have, it's one of the advantages of living out here in LA and working in entertainment is I have access to people that could actually do a good recording and get some actors and stuff like that. You're in the right
0: part of the country for actors. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: So I I don't know. It's, you know, one of those things you got. uh, I'm currently working on my own novel. So it's like, when do you find the time? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So, gents, here
0: we are with the life changing albums. I thought we'd start with jeff giles since it's been a while since he was on the pod last time when he was on the topic was yacht rock not sure if his (laughs) life-changing album has a boat theme but we're about to find out jeff it
2: does not it does not this was this was uh i struggled with this how long has it been it's been like what two three weeks since you sent out this invitation i think so yeah yeah, I think the entire time I've been trying to decide because I, I feel like anybody who really loves music has had their life altered innumerable times by mm-hmm. countless bits of music. And uh it was it was very difficult for me to narrow this down. I almost went with the second Bruce Willis record just to be just contrarian. a fair. jerk. <laughs> <laughs> It wouldn't be entirely insincere because my uh, what I was trying to think of when I when I was mulling over different candidates for this selection was the the function of certain records as as like gatekeeper uh, you know they they, they open mm-hmm. things up to you that you weren't expecting yeah. that Bruce Willis record really introduced me to jump blues in in a way that I don't think you usually need like a cool uncle or somebody to expose you to things that you wouldn't ordinarily hear on the radio Mm -hmm. and and so that record was sort of my cool uncle i guess for stuff like louis jordan mary Mm. clayton's on that record johnny Winter's on that record it's still a bruce willis album but (laughs) but anyway i decided not to go in that direction i was i was i was sitting at my desk and i looked at the wall and on my wall i have an autographed harry Nilsson album cover And it made me think of how I fell into the, you know, Nilsen's one of my favorite artists, and it made me think about how I fell into that rabbit hole, which was definitely a very life-altering moment for me. Summer of 1995, I'm getting over a horrible breakup deep in the throes of of, uh, the 21-year-old young man, Angst. And I go to Tower Records, and this was, again, 1995. So I don't know if you guys remember this, or if everybody listening remembers this, but back then tower had these listening booths or not listening booths, but they, you know, like a kiosk. It a yeah. It was like a bank. It was like a long bank of CD players. And, and mm-hmm. if you paid to have your record there, you could, people could walk up and listen to it. And one of the ones that was, that was there that the day that I went was a record called for the love of Harry. Everybody sings Nielsen. I had no experience with Nielsen really at this point. Okay. Uh, aside from the stuff that you hear on the radio, lime and the coconut. I, who really cares? Right. And, and, <laughs> Well, I was thinking about that. At 95,
0: I don't think Nielsen was even played on the radio at that point. No, not really. No. Yeah.
2: But I was a fan of Peter Wolf
0: From one single.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he covered uh, a Nielsen song called You're Breaking My Heart. And uh-huh. I saw that on the track listing, so I thought, oh, I'll check this out. And it was the right song at the right moment. Uh, I don't know if you know this song. Uh, I, I don't. It's one of many songs that got Nilsen in trouble with his label at the time, uh, because the chorus goes, you're breaking my heart, you're tearing it apart, so fuck you. And, <laughs> and I think it was released in, uh, I want to say, it, it was early 70s. You know, So it really wasn't the moment for, for artists to be using that kind of language on a mainstream mm-hmm. record, especially if, when they're known for things like Without You. But I fell in love with it. And, and so I bought the record. It's got all kinds of cool Nielsen covers on it. Um, Jellyfish is on the album. Mark Cohn covers Turn On Your Radio. Amy Mann, her cover of One is on there. Hmm. There's the Peter Wolf record. Marshall Crenshaw covers Don't Forget Me. Bill Lloyd is on there. Adrian Ballou covers Me and My Arrow. It's got 23 songs, all kinds of cool artists. It was put together by Al Cooper. And so it was just this window into the world of Harry Nilsson that I didn't know that I needed until I heard it. And from there, I went and purchased the bulk of the Nilsson back catalog, which up until close to that point had been out of print. Uh, Nilsson passed away in 94. At the time of his death, I think the label was kind of in the midst of, of being nudged into uh, a reappraisal of his catalog. And, mm-hmm. and so- they, they put out a bunch of, of records, and one of which is the one that I – the life-altering one for me is the, his yeah. album uh, Pussycats. Um, I don't know if either one of you are uh, familiar I, with that I'm one.
0: pretty much uh, – I, w- I, w- I was going to say naive, but it's really ignorant of, of Nielsen's output besides what was – you know, the hit songs, if you will. And the monkeys when they, they found yeah. that recording of him uh, and they, they put that on their, well, at the time, was their newest record.
1: I, I know just bits and pieces. And I'm, he's always, he's one of those characters in, in, rock, in rock and roll history that he puts out these really, you think he's one thing, you know, you, like everybody's talking, which is just mm-hmm. a really lovely, you know, song, but then, you know, what's the fire song
2: jump into the fire
1: jump into the fire which is just this psychedelic weirdo thing that yeah. fits so perfectly into goodfellas that you're like oh that's the same guy so um yeah he's one of these people that i kind of dig around you know that's the beauty of like something like spotify is you can just kind of dig through people's catalogs but i'm not i don't know enough about him. i think you you really summed it up
2: well scott he, he that's one of the things that really appeals to me about him is he's this kind of Chaotic, intoxicating blend of the sacred and the profane. You know, he had this beautiful voice, enormous range, and was capable of sounding like an angel, but really, like, he mostly just wanted to make fart jokes. And,
1: <laughs> and so. And he, hung they- out with- <laughs> he hung out a lot with Lennon, too, John Lennon, yeah. right? Yes. And that's
2: kind of the story behind Pussycats. He had his big break. He hit big with Nilsson Schmilson in 71, and he kind of. Didn't know exactly what to do. I think at that point, it, like a lot of artists who've had a big break, there were there were forces at play trying to keep him in the vein that had made him a star. Uh, but he he was like you said, Scott. He, he he did all kinds of different things, and so there was this period where he was still a big priority at the label, but he wasn't delivering sales uh, to the extent that I think people might have expected uh, after. Nielsen Schmilson. He did Son of Schmilson. He put out a record of standards called A Little Touch of, a Touch of Schmilson in the Night, which um, Rod Stewart had a lot of success with that decades later, but it really not, not the moment for, for a, yeah. a, a standards. So by 74, he is sort of falling out of favor with the label and in an attempt to keep his career going, he reaches out to his pal, John Lennon who is uh, in the midst of his Lost Weekend. He says, hey, John, how about you produce an album for me? John has a small window of time, but he agrees to do it. But they're really kind of under the gun. And one of the things that I love about this record is that early in the sessions, Nielsen had a reputation around this period of time for being kind of a drunken lout.
1: Perfect for the Bells- Lost Weekend, right? Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> no exactly. One he was buddies that. with Lennon.
2: Right. And they, you know, they got tossed out of, uh, I forget the name of the club, but they were heckling the Smothers Brothers. They were wearing tampons <laughs> on their heads. you know. But he, he went and he fell asleep on the beach and he, he got sick, but he didn't want to lose the chance to record with Lennon. So he kept up a brave face. He insisted that he was still good to go. And he kept on singing to the point where if, if the legends that I've read are true, he actually started bleeding from his throat. Oh my gosh, and wow. His voice was never really the same after this album, but I, I kind of like it. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of, of things that are too pretty or too perfect. And and one of the things that I love about Pussycats is hearing him sort of strain. Like there's a really beautiful cover of uh, Many Rivers to Cross, you know, the Jimmy Cliff song that kicks off this record. And it is just so. Heavy and 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 mournful, and you can hear him straining. And there are other cuts later in the record where he, he just sounds blown out. There's just something so broken about this record that really appeals to me. Even with that brokenness, you still have the brilliance of his his talent. Like Scott said, his music is many different things, and this record is is all of those things to me. It, you hear all of the things that made Nilsson great. I don't know how else to describe it, but that's that's the one that I would how, pick. I how think, often do you listen to this record? Not as often as I probably should. It's been a minute, and now that I'm talking about it, I think I'm going to go mm-hmm. back and listen to the whole catalog.
0: So, when you yeah. discovered Nielsen, you were going through a pretty bad breakup, nursing some wounds. <laughs> yes this this album does it bring you back to that
2: time when you Absolutely. listen to it? Yeah, yeah. I, I listen to it and as I think of the fall of '95. Yeah, it's a bit of a blues album in a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Because <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. you're thinking about this time where you, you've gotten your heart stomped on, or there's all sorts of feelings that are going on in, in your mind, whether it's sadness or anger. And, and maybe this album reflects a lot of that.
1: It and you does. hear that in the
0: grooves. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But he always had a great sense of humor, even when he was singing about really sad stuff. Like there's a song called Don't Forget Me on this record. And there's a line in the second verse, he says, in the summer by the poolside, while the fireflies are all around you, I'll miss you when I'm lonely. I'll miss the alimony too. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing while you're crying, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then at the end, he says, uh, and when we're older and full of cancer, it doesn't matter now. Come on, get happy because nothing lasts forever, but I will always love you. It's such a uh, a brilliant blend of. It's almost uh, Zevon-esque.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, it's like sounds like it would be a great companion to yeah. some of Warren Zevon stuff. Yeah. Did you do you find that
0: when you listen to this record, some of the the lyrics that maybe you didn't pay attention to upon first listen back in '94, or was it '95? It was '95, right? When you yeah, when you when you when you discovered Nielsen. But as you listen to them now, if you listen to the lyrics now, do they take on a different meaning decades later?
2: I mean, I think they have to, right? I was <laughs> twenty-one in '95, and I think at that age you believe that you understand some of the things that the, the you know the deep emotions <laughs> yeah. that are being um, right. bled out on songs like that. But there's no way that you really do. It. It's just the the raw emotion. It's a hangover from teenage angst, or whatever. like, yeah, I mean, you. Yeah. you you, you 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 believe that the 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 stuff that you're feeling is the most important stuff that you're ever going to feel but mm-hmm. clearly it's not the case. So yeah, yeah, absolutely, you know, would you I think uh, you can appreciate on a deeper level when you've lived the amount of life that the person who's actually singing the songs has lived.
0: When we started Pop Dose, or when you started Pop Dose and we started writing for it, there was a Valentine's Day post That's that we right. did called Songs for the Dumped. You remember that one? <laughs>
2: yes,
0: <laughs> and I contributed one, and and my song for the dumped was Pete Townsend's Slit Skirts, mm. and granted, you know, I mean, I was maybe seventeen when that record came out, and he was like thirty something, and in his mid thirties, right. and he's talking about this sort of midlife crisis that he's going through, and and I'm like. This shouldn't even appeal to me, but for some okay. reason yeah. it
2: did. I'm and impressed you I- even had that thought because I think across the board, the artists that we were into as mm-hmm. teenagers from probably, I don't know, the early 70s through the late 80s, that was, that was the case across the board. They were they was, These were middle-aged men and women singing yeah. prom ballads. I always talk about Chicago, you know, like these guys were on their third divorce and they're singing, "What well, you're the inspiration, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and nobody thought twice about it. It was patently ridiculous that people that age would be in, you know, that I would be the target demographic for somebody who was 30, 40, but that yeah. was just kind of, I don't know. It was a weird time. Like we, we shared the, the top 40 with our parents.
0: Well that's true. Yeah. There there was this crossover between I would say now, I mean, I don't have a lot in common with my daughter, who's, you know, she's in her mid-twenties now, but mm-hmm. in terms of music she likes what she likes, and mm-hmm. I listen to it, and I don't hear what's magical about it. It's just my old ears, I guess. I think that that's really what it comes down to. I think my mind is closed off to something that's that's new well, uh, or relatively new. She
2: and I follow each other on Instagram, mm-hmm. so I know what she's listening to. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> she's listening to Taylor Swift,
2: <laughs> yeah, or or uh, Lana Del Rey, you know, artists who are closer to her age. So I think mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. I yeah. It was a weird little hiccup in, in, in um, mainstream music history, I think, that impacted people
1: in our age group. I mean, it sounds weird to say, but the music that we listen to now is so similar, or at least that I listen to and what's popular on the radio, I feel like more similar to what was coming out in the 80s than what was coming out in the 70s, you know? And I feel like when we were growing up in the 80s, the genre was still trying, there was still a point where it was all trying to figure out, you know, it was still young in a way like the 60s were it's growing up period and the 70s were like what are we going to be now and i think that we got that in the 80s and by the 90s it was just like everybody was pulling from the stuff that had come before as opposed to really creating something new and that's why i think you know a lot of parents and their kids are listening to the same music
2: i think it also hadn't yet been established that you could be too old to be on the charts.
1: You know, the other thing about the 80s, and this is was something for me, is like I, the classic rock, the format came out like the mid-80s. Someone like me who was, I was, you know, 16, 17 in the 80s, that's what I dis- when I discovered the Led Zeppelins and the Who's and, you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff from the 60s because I was getting tired of some of the stuff that was on the radio. And so all of a sudden you had a bunch of teenagers listening to the stuff that their parents literally listened to when they were teenagers and there was that bonding moment, you know?
2: Yeah. But a lot of those artists were also still
1: commercially relevant, right? If you go back, you
2: you discovered Zeppelin in the eighties, but uh, Robert Plant, was still he still had hits right Um,
1: or yeah and you had like a band like yes that had a sudden resurgence and then everybody every other band from that the 70s was like well they can do it why don't we do it i want a piece of that yeah deep purple come back and emerson lake and whatever the drummer's name powell yeah the drummer well yeah powell was the uh the stand in for palmer uh, in the
2: 80s that song touch and go oh yeah
1: I have that album. I was like, I was so into that like hard rock progressive stuff. It was silly. I think it's
0: interesting that you mentioned, mentioned classic rock. And I remember, well, where well, Jeff also lived in the area at the time, but there was a radio station called KRQR that had started in the mid 80s. And they started saying, you know, classic rock, KRQR, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, and it was sort of like a joke. It's like, these songs
1: are classic rock. This,
0: what does this even mean?
1: Yeah.
0: They're not that, these songs aren't that old.
1: And it's funny you say that because I think about that all the time. I think about listening to a radio station now that's playing good times, bad times from 68. And if you put the, if if you think about how a teenager now listening to Zeppelin, is the same as like if we were that age listening to what Frank Sinatra, no, Stephen Foster, yeah, it's- yeah, you know, it's like it's it's really <laughs> strange. <laughs> yeah, the format survives
0: and it thrives in in many ways, and I think that the, it's kind of comfort music now. Certainly dad rock, but it's got that familiar quality that it crosses generations in a way that. I don't think they anticipated that back in the '80s when they started no. the format. Yeah, no. and Probably I agree on do you know elevator
1: music, man.
2: It, well, yeah. that's the problem, right? Is it, it does have a, a comfort to it? It does have a familiarity, but part of that is that the the format playlists haven't changed in 30 years. If I say Pink Floyd, you know the three songs are going to play, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> or or they, normal. or they may have dug into the, you know, there's only so much. It's like, well, we're going to play that one Pink Floyd song that we haven't played ever, and we're going to play yeah. that ad nauseum until we we're sick of that one, and then it's like, well, now what do we play? I just think classic rock, as far as a format
0: and whoever programs it, uh, they just they test these songs over and over and over yep. again to the point where that's all they're going to play, and I'm thinking. Yeah, you know, Pink Floyd had a pretty big uh, catalog there. They've got more than uh, Money
1: and Comfortably mm-hmm. Numb yeah. and, and Wish You Were Here. There's like three albums they play from. It's only yeah, and the out. rules don't ever, you know, never. The rules never change. It's like when does when does Nirvana become the classic rock? How come they haven't become classic rock? You know, they're I old think enough. they
0: kind of are. I've I feel like they on the 1077
1: The Bone. Now they play yeah, Blood and Nirvana. baby steps in that direction.
2: Yeah. Nirvana, Soundgarden, groups like that. But, but not right. Nielsen, from, yeah. But not Nielsen. <laughs> but not it's Nielsen. A real,
1: you know, it's funny because it's a real drag. Because well, into the fire, I I hear on classic rock stations because that falls into the sound of it, you know, of classic rock. But yeah, none of his none of his earlier stuff. It's a shame. But yeah. you
0: know, getting back to Nielsen, I'm just, I, as Jeff is talking about his his music and how diverse it is. You would think that something like that would be ripe for classic rock. Because it would diversify the playlist in such mm-hmm. a way and introduce the, the listeners who are young, the younger listeners, to an artist that doesn't get played to death. But for whatever reason, there are a whole host of artists from that era that just they just remain buried. They don't get yeah. in second life
2: or third life. So, Back when I was second, writing for it, Ultimate Classic Rock, I used to say, this would probably mean more to Scott than to you, Ted, but I used to say okay. that, that Classic Rock needed to have its Marvel moment. And this was back when Marvel was making a concerted effort to sort of upend a lot of legacy characters by making, for example, Thor, a woman. Yeah, The Hulk was an Asian kid for a while. Um, Iron Man died in the comics and and a a black teenage girl became a character known as Iron Heart. They they did it sort of across the board with uh, a number of characters kind of all at once. And I thought it was brilliant. There were a lot of other people who got upset about it. But I think that's kind of what you need in order to maintain what's largely been a closed ecosystem. You know, There were people making rock in the classic rock era who were not Mm -hmm. white dudes. And I think if by some miracle, the format opened up to artists that don't reflect that sound that everybody's heard before and, and make it more obvious that people who are not from that particular demographic have been part of rock history all along, then I think that would really be beneficial but i i kind of don't see
1: it happening i mean the only place i could see that happening is like on satellite radio
2: mm, yeah. right
1: I, I i listen to the deep tracks on sirius xm and you know where those djs have an opportunity to play whatever the hell they want and mm-hmm. well, you know and i i can see it there and i can't see it on the commercial radio because
2: we've seen how powerful representation can be and and it would, yeah. be de- it would be possible to play that angle with classic rock i mean there's a documentary about um native american rock artists i could be to- speaking totally out of turn right now but i think link ray was native american or uh at least not as caucasian as many people might assume there's a group called fanny it was uh, an early all-female band prior to or at least concurrent with heart there's all kinds of ways that you can op- open up that playlist, aside from mm-hmm. playing, you know, a different Pink Floyd song.
1: Absolutely,
2: <laughs> absolutely, or, add, or adding Nielsen, <laughs> or oh. adding Nielsen. See what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to, I'm
0: yeah. trying to be your AR guy here for
2: Nielsen Man. and oh. get, get a <laughs> awesome. on, on the air. <laughs> hey
1: Jeff, so, have you seen the documentary on Nielsen? Yeah, I
2: have, and so, uh, I, mean, I, I see
0: that all
1: listed on my. I, on my I saw website. it too on
0: Jeff's recommendation. I watched it. And that's the only introduction, if you will, that I, I didn't know much about his life. But then I, I watched this thing. I said, I had no idea. It's an interesting story.
2: It. I would, yeah. I, yeah, I would recommend watching it. At the very least, you'll be surprised to see Curtis Armstrong, who <laughs> you may know as Booger from the Edge of the Nerds movies. Or, oh man, this is embarrassing. He was on moonlighting. Yes, Bert. Uh, Bert, uh, I can't remember his last name. Anyway, uh, he is a, a renowned Nielsen scholar. Gets to show off that knowledge in the movie.
0: You know, we were talking about you in the last episode on TV theme songs, and I mentioned how much of a moonlighting fan oh, you absolutely. are and were. And I said that I had never seen the show. Oh. and you can't get it Ted. on. Well, you can get it on DVD, but you pay a handsome price. Oh, you have to pay out the nose. Yeah, it's yeah, out print. yeah. But you oh, can go to your, your
1: library, print, Ted. That, that's a good. thing.
0: Yeah, maybe they might. They've, they they have might.
2: Right. But you can yeah. also see most of it on YouTube. I think.
0: Really, just like yeah. the the bad dubs, if you will,
2: um or- well, they're not great, yeah, for whatever reason, Disney doesn't seem to be bringing down the hammer too hard on people who've uploaded episodes of moonlighting to YouTube. Well, Scott
0: and I were talking about how how much of a I guess a bit of a game changer it was for television because they really broke that fourth wall and yeah. did a lot of episodes that were playing with the genre of detectives. They did. A, he said they did an episode in black and white, and there was a musical episode, and, and yep. so clearly I missed out on it because I didn't
1: watch <laughs> the show. So, <laughs> and after well, you after that. It was a different era, though, because if you didn't watch the show, you missed it, you know? It yeah, like exactly. You it, you know? Right, exactly.
0: So we were talking about classic rock. And Scott, I guess if you think about classic rock, the artist that is a life-changing album, or at least the artist that recorded a life-changing album for you, is definitely a staple of classic rock. So you take it and tell us about your life-changing album.
1: Well, mine is Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel Love. Yeah, you know, this The Bolo this, this, Tie album. The, the Bolo <laughs> Tie album, his his country album. It is a country album if you listen to In many to his ways, album. yeah. 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 Um, I, I would say this, this album was uh, a lightning bolt moment in my life. Uh, up until 87, when that album came out, I hadn't been caught up in the whole Bruce hysteria mm-hmm. that kind of shook the world with Born in the USA, which is weird because anyone who grew up in Cleveland and listened to rock radio in the 70s and 80s. They'll you- tell you that Springsteen's in your DNA because they, he mm-hmm. was. Uh, Hugely promoted in that town and uh, had a strong backing from the radio stations and what what was that era like for you? Because
2: I, I know for me when I was growing up, any time an artist was so massive that you couldn't escape them, it just bugged the shit out of me. So it's interesting. Same to me here,
1: hear. same here. You know, it's funny you say that because and a lot of those artists have gone back and rediscovered, you know, like the police at the time. Exactly. Like, oh, yes. So t- synchronicity was so huge. I was like, F the police, you know. But then yep. like three years later. <laughs> I discovered all their <laughs> earlier albums, and I just fell in love with them. And Springsteen, you know, it was another thing. You know, I just didn't get the hype. Partially because my early rock tastes were, you know, mainstream rock bands like Journey and some Yes, whose lyrics didn't really, you know, dig into the the plum. what's the plumb the depths of the human psyche? I guess that's, you can edit that out, can't you? Ta- sure, um, I can do anything. <laughs> but I'd always liked You know, I liked a lot of the hit songs. I liked Hungry Heart. I liked, you know, Born to Run was a staple every Friday night on WMMS in Cleveland. Kid Leo would play that before it was his last song every Friday night. Okay. um, And I think what changed all that, I don't know, is just a running theme here, but heartbreak, anxiety, depression, doubt, Mm -hmm. confusion. I was a senior in high school in the fall of 87. And, you know, I don't know the exact day that I heard that it all changed but i know it was december of 87 because uh i know the album tunnel of love was already out and uh, brilliant disguise was a, a hit mm-hmm. and um similar to jeff's experience i was uh i wasn't going through a breakup but uh, my you know the teenage crush the girl that was you know my love of my life at that time uh, had just told me that she and her family were moving oh and uh trust me that's much harder than a breakup because mm-hmm. Because you oh, hold yes. out all that you hold out all that hope we can make it work we'll go to the same college and all that stuff you know you' all that optimism but you, no it's, it's similar to what you said Jeff it's like you you don't know you just you're just a dumb teenager you think that's all gonna work, but you don't really understand how life works at that point and uh, yeah and on top of that you know that heartbreak of dealing with all that you know that's like I was a senior in high school so I was like, oh, I'm going to college next year. what does that all mean? Do I really have what it takes to, to kind of pursue a career that I want to do. I don't know. I know this much. It was like a late afternoon. I was in my parents' basement uh, in Ohio and uh, brilliant disguise was winding down. And, and the DJ kid, Leo, again, this guy, I don't know if anybody knows little Stevens on the grand garage, but uh, he's now on there. And, uh, and he comes on and he is a, as a song is fading out in the last lyrics that uh, kid Leo said something like, "Yo, never has a more truthful words been spoken. <laughs> and then, uh, he repeats the last line, which is uh, "God have mercy on the man who doubts what he's sure of." Yeah, and yeah. Um, and like like oh, going back to what Jeff said, you think you know, you think you're you're this adult, and that just spoke to me so much because uh, I thought I knew everything. And so then it was like suddenly I had a craving for Springsteen. It was weird. It was like uh, suddenly having a craving for a food that you you never really liked, or noticing your <laughs> yes. Or or suddenly realizing that that girl who always annoyed you was really pretty and it's like, I I you know? it was a real Harry and Sally moment, you know? And um, I couldn't get that quote out of my mind, so I, I reached out to my best friend at the time, and he had the album, and he let me borrow it until I get my next paycheck, and then I went out and bought it myself. and And I just, I absorbed that record, and... I love the first side, but you know, the second side is the heartbreak side. And that really yeah. spoke to me yeah. in
0: the moment. It's kind of his it, divorce album. I
1: mean, it's really it is. the interesting yeah. thing about that is like, nobody knew that, you know? Right. And, and what really fascinates me about this album and then going back to like, do you listen to it over and over again? And I listen to this one over and over again. I listen to it at least two or three times a year, you know, all the way through. And when you start listening to a record, it's like three days straight and, then you're like, okay, it's time to move on to the next one. But um, I once read a, a, a book, one of the Dave Marsh books on Springsteen, and he made a comment about tunnel love and how he felt that like the songs on the second side should have been reversed in their running order hmm. because it feels like, you know, because it is this divorce album that the album should end with tunnel love, which is about how things don't work out. But I always felt that like Springsteen and just was trying to be optimistic, you know, things hmm. weren't working out in his marriage. And so, the first side is all about the hope and the romance and and getting married. And the second side is all about the turmoil and and the struggle, but it ends with that song Valentine's day, which is, you you talk about a song that stirs up memories. I mean, that was the song that, that wouldn't, I would listen to that one and I'd be alone or I would just bawl my eyes out. You know, I'm not afraid to say it. It was just like everything that I was experienced with that, that, that heartbreak was in that song, you know, to this day, I, I'll listen to the whole album and I'll hesitate to listen to that song it just stirs oh, up. oh man Scott uh, and it, you know I I've been married for 30 years you know yeah I just but it's just it's and it's not about the girl it's just that what right. it stirs up you know mm-hmm. um, only recently have i begun been able to kind of appreciate that song and then what I like about mm-hmm. the way Springsteen did the running order is that the album ends in a way hopeful and he's trying to make it work which I think he was doing at that point. He was trying to make it work with his then wife, but it, was, it wasn't destined to happen. There's but, so many
2: things I love about this story that you're telling.
1: Oh, yeah? Well, great. Well, yeah, Thanks. I mean,
2: for one thing, well, not the fact that you <laughs> – <yeah>, I, <love laughs> I love the thought of you sobbing while listening to it. No. I, I'm a firm believer that context is everything. You never know when something is just going to hit you like a bolt out of the blue, even if it's from an artist that you think you know enough about to, to write them off.
1: And this one is is so different too, you know. Yeah. Think about that's where he part. Was- There's
2: another thing that I love about this story is that you did not buy into the 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 born in the, in the USA uh, madness, but then this record came along, and it's a record
1: that a lot of fans really didn't love, but you did. What he did was kind of ballsy. I mean, any artist, especially in the '80s, you think about you know Bon Jovi or Journey or any of those mm-hmm. bands that had this huge success, and the follow up album was an attempt to match the previous album you know it's a sequel yeah. yeah the sequel is and he comes out with this thing that is so personal and so not born in the USA
0: that's what drew me to that record was the the lead single which was brilliant disguise yeah and when, when I first heard it I was I was in radio at the time so I heard it a lot but I was driving around with one of my friends Carrie and we were listening to the song and I said, this sounds like he's breaking up with somebody like, isn't he married to <laughs> a beautiful Hollywood Truman style? Right, yeah. yeah, right. And, uh, she says, it does sound like it. She goes, well, maybe he's just, you know, it's a character or something like that. And I said, right. oh, I think this guy's pretty personal about his feelings. So, and then she calls me up a few days later. She goes, you were right. And I said, He's getting divorced. Yeah, I said, Oh, is. okay.
1: Well, you talked about like how context and how things change as you get older. I thought I felt everything I was 18, 19 and 20. And, um, and then I met my, you know, my, my wife and all of those songs took on different meaning in my twenties, mm. all of those songs about, Especially the first side, I went back to the first side and like songs like Tougher Than the Rest and uh, All That Heaven Will Allow. You know, those are just beautiful love songs, but they're so, so smartly written. There's a storytelling that he, you know, he, this is a really like a, you know, a storytelling album. It's not broad strokes, it's like little intimate things. I, I was just looking at like Tougher Than the Rest. You know, some girls want a handsome Dan or some good looking Joe in their arms. Some girls like a sweet talking Romeo, a Brown hair baby. I learned you get what you can get. So if you're rough enough for love, honey, I'm tougher than the rest. I mean, that's basically what all relationship is. It's like, yeah, there's a great looking, there's better looking guys all around. But if you want someone with, with heart and soul who's going to take care of you, I'm your man. And, and I think anybody who's been married for a long time, you know, 30 years is a long time. You know, you go through all of the stuff that's on this album. And, um, and I yeah. have. What I get from it when I listen to it now is it's, is, it's a feeling that you're not alone. You know, you're not the only one that's going, has, has suffered these experiences or, or Mm you struggled and stuff. And I think that that's what great music does for you. Enduring music does for you. You you can can go back to it like a good book, you know, and find a passage that really speaks to you. And to this day, I was listening to the record just in preparation for this podcast. And, And again, I was like, I was amazed listening to spare parts, which is this really raw, kind of almost raunchy song on the first side. And and I was amazed at how sexual it was, you know. And there's that line, he goes, Johnny said he'd pull out, Johnny stayed in. And I was like, you know, that's is 1987, man. Next, and this is yeah. a mainstream huge artist. And he just and he was kind of shown his cards of what he who he was then. You know, it's kind of like, oh born in the USA, we cleaned up my image and stuff, but now I'm going back to who I really am and I'm gonna be frank. Bruce yeah. Springsteen gets a PG thirteen rating. <laughs> yeah, no <I'm> kidding. <laughs> you know, He's dropped the f bomb on a couple of his records, but he, mm-hmm. doesn't, get, he doesn't get the the sticker. So you yeah. know, and and it's the funny thing about this record is that uh, I've turned my whole family onto Springsteen fans. You know, every one of them, my kids, my daughter, and I are we really bond over music. Sophie and I do, and this is the one record I don't share with anyone. Really, you know, it wow. is. It's it's, it's a very personal it's, record for you. It then, is yeah. very personal and. If they were ever to discover it, and want to talk about it, I would love to. But I, it's not like I go, "Hey, let's listen to uh, one step up, <laughs> two steps back." You know, you know,
0: this is Dad. Would, re- Dad what are you trying to tell us? <laughs> yeah, <I don't laughs> listen to this
1: stuff. <laughs> and it's remarkable. I think it's very telling too, because a lot of uh, a lot of times when you hear people cover Springsteen, I do hear a lot of people covering the songs from this album, hmm. and I think that there's something in there. A lot of people connect to this album.
2: It's really hard to write about mature relationships. It it requires a degree of nuance that is uh, hard to weave into pop songs. Yeah. Um, It's uncommon. And I think that helps set this record apart. And also, uh, this is all reminding me that there's nothing quite like a good rock and roll divorce record. (laughs) Yep.
0: (laughs) Yep. I think in a way he was also divorcing Springsteen from the born in the USA period, you know, that was just like, okay, I've done the stadium thing. I'm this big superstar. And he did kind of like what Prince did after Purple Rain, which is, yeah. you know, around the world in a day was a weird, psychedelic pastiche of songs that just was like, wait, what, this is Prince? And Springsteen does sound like Springsteen, but his voice isn't so over the top like on Born in the USA, whereas like one of my friends Paul says, I can't stand Springsteen, man. I said, Why? Because he always sounds like he's constipated when he sings, you know? Clearly didn't hear anything beyond the hits, but even on this, on this record, I I find that his voice is much more subdued and, yeah. and it brings out uh, well, the qualities that he had hoped for, which is talking about his, his divorce, about relationships, yeah. about things that sometimes you don't use your big, loud stadium voice to talk about your heartbreak and woe. You have to use your sort of softer voice. Yeah. I really vocal. admire
2: this record. I mean, I think when you achieve a level of success like, you, like he had with Born in the USA, you can either try to make a sequel, which I think is the thing that the label probably always advocates for, sure. and – and, Calling ACDC. Calling ACDC. Yeah, yeah. you probably feel like the fans want it. It's usually a ticket to a quick career death, or at least uh, you, you know, you're know you begging comparisons that are always going to be unfavorable to you. I think about Michael Jackson a lot when we talk about stuff like this because he always acted like each next album had to be bigger than the one before it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Last year on the 1991 podcast I did with Matt Wardlaw, we talked about you uh, 2 and what they did after Joshua Tree, you know, with Rattle and Hum, which was I think mm-hmm. really wise, they scaled down. It's, it was just like this little
1: odds and sods thing, barely still had hits album. Yeah.
2: Still had still hits, yeah. but then they, they tried have... to
1: recycle that too, which is really I, I think that kind of yeah, it kind of dried up after that, unfortunately. You know?
2: Ultimately, but what I mean is, you can either I just think it's smart and it's brave to do what he did here and dial it back yeah. and do something a little yeah. more subtle.
1: Yeah, I and mean, you know it's it's funny you say about divorcing himself from the Born in the USA thing, and I think that he was divorcing himself from the band mm-hmm. at the time. You know, they only it's, played on one song, right? The E Street Band played on Tunnel of Love. Well, Mines. yeah, a bunch of the guys, a bunch of the band, like Max is on a lot of the songs, but then they're all just kind of sporadically included. Mm-hmm. Like the Mills does that fantastic guitar solo in Tunnel of Love. Mm-hmm. Patty mm-hmm. Patty was, has some backup vocals here and there, and I think Danny has a. Good some organ stuff but it's it's not a full band record it's like bruce had his demos he did his things and he brought the guys in as he needed them and the subsequent tour you know was at the point where he was starting to kind of mess with the stage and it's like i'm gonna move you guys around and they were like what yeah you know, and, and,
0: mtv got behind that tour they were doing a lot of promos for the tour and it made it sort of like this this sort of game show thing and it, it didn't work i mean i thought did they even listen to this record? Yeah, and they're trying to make it into this spectacle, and I'm just like, eh, you know, just mm, well. That's what everybody MTV. expected. Yeah.
1: You know, everybody yeah. thought yeah. it was going to be "Born in the USA" too. Surprise! And if, you know, and if he, if you listen to, I you mean, know, he Springsteen puts out all these, you know, live recordings now from his archive, and if you listen to that ton of Love stuff, the set lists are all screwy and weird, and and it was a it was a production. It wasn't just come out and jam. It was like mm-hmm. a whole like thematic. Production with set pieces and and stuff like that. That I'm just like, surprised he signed on to that because the album is anything but that. Well, he yeah. signed yeah. On, he signed on to. I, he's the one who came up with all of that stuff. You know, don't, don't 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 try and be. You know, he he he's in charge. Well, okay, so he sold himself out, thinking, man, I got to make a few bucks. Got to yeah. try to do something for the he fans. He signs off on everything. John Landau comes to him, and is like, I think this is a good idea, Bruce. He's like, okay. Oh, I thought Bruce goes to him and says, what do you think of this idea, man? (laughs) Maybe. I don't know.
0: (laughs) And then they go back and forth. Well, as we dovetail into my life-changing album, it's in the 80s. It's not uh, like Jeff's, which is you know the the 70s, as it were. Mine is Dire Straits' Love Over Gold, which came out in 1982, September 20th, 1982. To me, it's their masterpiece. I mean, it really didn't sell many copies. It was kind of... uh, well it, I'm sure the label wasn't happy about it and they redeemed themselves with brothers in arms a few years later and also they did that EP twisted by the pool which got a lot of radio play and I think that that was kind of a, a way to say, hey you know don't drop us, please because, right. yeah. you know, <laughs> because we've got we still got some gas in the tank here. So yeah. as I said this this record comes out September 20th, 1982. It's the start of my senior year of high school. And I used to listen to a radio station in Sacramento called KZAP I, I, most mornings while I was getting ready for, for school. And I would hear the song Industrial Disease, which was the yeah. single, kind of an upbeat, kind of whimsical and, and sounds fun until you dig into the lyrics. You're all like, oh, this isn't, uh, this isn't the fun little jaunty song that I thought it was. It's a little more than that. I bought the album on a whim when I went to San Francisco one day to, quote, check out medical schools. And I use air quotes there. <laughs> a, a guy at, at school was saying that he was thinking about going to medical school. And I was thinking about it too. My my father, well, he's no longer alive, but he was an ophthalmologist. And I, and he wanted at least one of the kids to go into the family business. And I'm the youngest of four. And so that was his last hope at this point. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So throwing the old man of bone. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, so I go,
0: I go to San Francisco and I, I convince my mom and my stepdad to let me out of school that day to go check out medical school. So I was gonna go to UCSF for some sort of um open house. The problem was I couldn't find UCSF. You now, of course, this is the time before. Google maps and everything. So, and I didn't even have a map with me. So I actually ended up down at San Francisco state. Interestingly enough, I went to college there and I'm like it was, they had, they did have an open house that day. So I was just walking around uh, getting information. So I thought, you know what? Uh, they gave me some money uh, for lunch and for parking or whatever incidentals. And so I go out to tower records, which is on Columbus and Bay in San Francisco. And I'm just you know, going through the the stacks, and I see that this album is out, Love Over Gold. So I buy the cassette. I listen to Industrial Disease in the car a couple of times, and then I thought, well, I'm gonna just check out the rest of the the record. So I I rewind it to the to the beginning, which I the first can't wait song where the,
2: the story is going. <laughs> so <laughs> because I know song,
0: the first song is Telegraph Road, which is this epic 14 minute song, exactly. And and i'm like listening to this thing and i get on the bay bridge and it's it's sort of pulling me in and i'm thinking this is really kind of this is not industrial disease <laughs> this is this is like they're telling a story this is like a real like a like a novel almost so i'm heading up uh highway 24 towards the caldecott tunnel and back home and the album starts to build in momentum and so as i bolt out of the tunnel. There's this huge drum fill by Pick Withers, the drummer of Dire Streets at the time. It hits as I come out of the tunnel, like at 70 miles an hour. And right then it goes into the sprawling lead guitar. It it was so cinematic at that point. It just was like right on cue. And I thought, oh my God, this song is – I've never heard anything quite like this to carry me into in, into an immersive experience while i was driving but telegraph road did that for me i look at the the record before love over gold making movies which had hits off of it like skate away and romeo and juliet and tunnel of love <laughs> i felt like that album was a was like a series of short short stories love over gold is like a novel to me this novel where the chapters don't really relate to one another so the characters are all kind of different but in the end There's a big theme. And the big theme is this sort of political, economic volatility in the United Kingdom. So these songs became kind of an inspiration for me about a year later. uh, When I was in high school, we had a, a TV program called a regional occupational program. And I was doing a lot of TV work, three hours a day. By my first three hours of school, I had TV classes. So Dire Straits didn't figure too prominently on there till I got to the community college I went to, Diablo Valley College, and they had a film program. And at that time, I wanted to be a film director, so I took this class uh, intro, like an intro to film class, where we had to do like a, a three-minute film. And I was working at a radio station then uh, called KKIS, and I, I had like the, the shift where you get off at midnight, so I'd be driving home at midnight often, and the freeways were empty, and I'd be listening to. Love Over Gold and there's a song on there called Private Investigations which is very moody and interestingly enough that song went to like number 1 in 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 England which I never got I'm all like this song but right. there's the song and and as I was driving home I had to like maybe a 20 minute drive from the radio station back to my house and I found that this song Private Investigations was also very cinematic very moody and I thought oh I have this assignment where I have to do this film edited in the camera, three minutes edited in the camera film. That was the assignment. And I thought I'll do something with private investigations, just the music, not the lyrics, just the music. And I kept thinking it sounds like I don't know, it sounds mysterious. It maybe somebody somebody's dying. And so I, I you know my my college bullshit years where I tried to you know <laughs> we all had those right the college right, bullshit to, years <laughs> yeah so I tried to be already farty but um so I shot the thing in black and white. I got one of my friends sadly this friend who was also on this podcast he was uh, Scott Birmingham he talked about Billy Joel on the, on the podcast he he passed away mm-hmm. not too long after he recorded the podcast episode a couple months later he died in his sleep suddenly but I casted him in this in this um film where he plays supposedly this 40 year old man Now, great he's 18 at the time and it's about him has some sort of I guess it's like a heart attack. And then he is being sort of chased by death through the hospital. And I mentioned the hospital because my father was a physician. I got to film it at Kaiser Hospital in Walnut Creek. That is so cool, man. (laughs) I know. I had a set. I even had to ask access to an ambulance. Uh, So I had some great visuals. So I put this together and it worked. It was not a very good film, but it got a lot of – positive feedback for the photography. Cause I filmed it in black and white and the use of the music. So the, the professor at the time, he was just like, did you edit that in the camera? I said, I did, except for one, I had to make one edit because we screwed up on the ambulance scene. I said, but really the whole thing was shot in sequence. And he was
2: like, oh, right, right, right.
0: so um, <laughs> that album became sort of the touchstone that launched what I thought was going to be sort of a, a creative endeavor of making short films based on songs on that record. And I tried with industrial disease and it, it was the shittiest film. <laughs> I, I won't screen it for anyone because when I made it, I didn't play the music as I was shooting the sequences. And when I edited the uh, the film, as you know, Scott, when you have to edit film, you're physically cutting yeah. a, a you know film and stitching it together with glue. Yeah, well I didn't have the the music with me so I had to like play it in my head like is this actually syncing up with the lyrics? Is this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it didn't work. It was just an absolute flop and you know just a, a golden turkey award nominee and uh and I had plans to do Telegraph Road. I I was going to work on I was doing like pre-production I'm using air quotes because you know it was just me and this other guy a friend of mine Mm -hmm. and he was actually going into the Marine Corps so um once he left I just didn't have anybody to work on it with and it was too big I was just like this is gonna cost me a lot of money and I don't have a lot of money (laughs) so
1: that's
0: the that's this album for me that just for some reason it came along at the right time that it sparked a lot of creativity for me, for better for worse. And it, as far as the creative output was, it was for worse because it wasn't that good. But I found it to be a very inspirational album. And there's a filmmaker named Bill Forsythe who mm-hmm. did a Local Hero and Gregory's Girl and another film called Comfort and Joy. He found this album, Love Over Gold. Inspirational. He was going through some kind of uh, writer's block and he listened to the record. He's friends with Mark Knopfler and he told Knopfler, he said, I'm going to write a movie because of this record. And the, the movie has nothing to do with the record, but some of that music ended up in the soundtrack of the film, somewhat adapted and then somewhat remixed. But um, I, I remember reading with uh, an interview with Bill Forsyth, and he was talking about, about this record and how much it really kind of saved him. In terms of self-doubt, sparked a, his creative urge again. You know, It was sort of a muse for him. And I thought, yeah, I know how you feel. Fortunately for you, Bill, you're a good filmmaker. <laughs> Fortunately for me, I'm not very good <laughs> oh, There's still time, Ted.
1: Is yeah, it, it's too there, late. Maybe I guess so. So that's my that's my life changing album was Love Over Gold, dude. You Dyer. could make that uh, that Telegraph Row, or uh, you could go back and redo Industrial Disease now that you can edit in in the computer. So you that's true.
0: Just- I I have all that footage. It's it's still on wow. film. It's up in the closet, and um, it's all processed. And I I had an idea to do something with it because Dire Straits did release a video of Industrial Disease. It's just them on the stage. It looks like they were on some. Television show, doing a live performance and miming along to the song, but um, I thought I had this idea that maybe I could salvage some of the footage and and recut it in such a way that it wasn't so literal. And that was my problem: is that the film that I made was too literal to the lyrics, and it just was stupid. So, well, that's just youth, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Man,
1: it's, um, it's interesting that all of these all of these records that we're talking about were so important at a point in our, when we were young, you know, mm-hmm. when we were in our early twenties or late teens. And I, I mean, just hearing your story about your friend, I mean, this album must take on a total different meaning now that he passed away. Huh?
0: Yeah. About a, about a year or two before he passed away, he said, you know, that film that I was in back when I was 18, I said, yeah. I said, you should redo it because I'm at the age, where, you know, it would, be, it would look realistic. I said, no, I don't want to redo it. Scott was also a big uh, film guy. He he made his own. He did uh, his own films as well. That's cool. Um, And he was a film critic. So mostly that was was his day job was being a film critic up in Reno. And uh, loved 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 Billy Joel. And uh, we had a nice discussion about why I don't love Billy Joel. I know Jeff. Sorry, Uh, but uh, in the end. In the end, he did convince me that uh, it was really what I didn't love
2: was all the hits
0: because I got burnt yeah. out
2: on them. I don't like yeah. the hits either. So we're, yeah, we're okay, oh, well, that goes well, like
1: back to you know when somebody becomes so huge, you're just like, I'm so tired of them. I'm tired of this. Yeah, it does. Radio ruins everything, right, Ted? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it does. It ruins well, it too <laughs> when you're when when some <laughs> small when some small band you like. Uh, I, I'll never forget when uh, when Hornsby's album between yeah. big. And I was like, I, I was am. so mad because yeah. I had been listening to it for a year. And I'm like, it was almost like this little club that was like, I like this guy who plays a piano. It's so cool. And then all of a sudden everybody's singing the way it is. And I'm like, no, no, there's better songs. <laughs> so. And that's, I wanted to, that's exactly what I was going to get at
2: is that a record like love over gold. I, I, there's a power, I think in listening and falling in love with an album that you feel like you're the only one who knows. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not possible to do that with, born in the usa not possible to do that with brothers in arms yeah but definitely yeah. possible to do so with love over gold and, and probably to a lesser extent with uh, tunnel of love you know kind of these red-headed stepchildren it allows you to to feel a much more personal ownership over the music and i i, I love that this record exists i mean they had such big balls this album was not designed to be a hit no, no. i Especially know the label. 14
1: out 14 minute opening yeah. track it's
0: like exactly I know the label wanted to cut Telegraph wrote into a five-minute single because they liked the song, but they thought we could do a five-minute version of it. And they're like, "No, there's just no way." Uh, uh-uh. you, you and we, put it all right
2: you, there in the title, "Love Over Gold." Man, that's yeah, what the entire know. fucking mission statement for this album. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And, and more. The more I, you know, dug into the lyrics later, you know, beyond me literally trying to, you know, do the literal translation of the uh, of the lyrics into into images. But upon reflection later in in my life, and I'm reading through this and I'm like, this is a this is kind of um, a middle finger to Thatcherism, sort of this Reaganomics and and the, the the economic downturn and what that was doing to the working class within the UK. And on the first listen, you don't get that. At least for me, as I dug into the lyrics more, I was like. Oh, oh, okay, I get it now. I see what you're doing. So even though Telegraph Road is about that road that goes uh, into the Detroit area, I think Knopfler was looking at the similarities between what was happening in the 80s in the United States and definitely in the UK with yep. you know you had Reagan in the, in the, in the United yeah. States, you had know, Thatcherism in, in the UK and there were very similar outcomes as far as what it did to the working class and middle class of, of those countries. Those are our albums, and I think we're we're going to try to to wrap this up. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, got, this yeah, is great. Was,
2: yeah, yeah, me too. Very
0: in depth, and it got me to think about Nielsen in a different way. Like I'm now going to listen to Nielsen's music yeah, uh, more actively, and uh, I, excellent. I really appreciate you sharing not only the heartache and woe side of it, but also the fact that he's a very diverse artist that doesn't get a lot of credit beyond, you know, the hits or like mm-hmm. you said, the lime and the coconut type of stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, it, and I always think that it's interesting that and in the case of like, you know, Nilsson and the Springsteen thing is like how an album that you connect to in the middle of heartbreak opens a door to a lifelong, you know, love affair with an artist, you know, yeah, because yeah, that's, that's a really good point tunnel of love was my entry was my entry point to springsteen and as you guys know i'm just you know i'm a huge springsteen fan and i mm-hmm. became mm-hmm. Of that because of that album so and obviously it sounds like uh the heartbreak that you were going through jeff in, brought you into to Nilsson. so absolutely definitely and
0: before we wrap up i i wanted to mention Jeff, yeah. about your podcasts, you've have you've had many, but uh, the last, uh, the one I was on was 1991, the year AOR ate itself. But the one yes. that you're on with Matt Wardlaw, who I invited on this, but he had to bow out for various he's reasons. He's
2: too busy. He's a busy, busy. Man. He is he, Wardlaw. Busy, it's called
0: <laughs> the Record Player, and yeah. it's very, very, very good. It uh, is deep Thank talk you. about albums that I, many of them I never listened to, but Same. after listening to your conversations. I say, hey Siri,
1: play blah blah
0: blah. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. What I love about that podcast is that it's like the albums that you guys talk about are just a jumping off point about talking about music in general. And that's always like yeah. it feels like you're hanging out in somebody's bedroom or their basement. You know, it's like let's listen to this record, and then you listen to it and then it goes off in another direction. And I just that's a such a great fun way to spend an hour. I it love is.
2: that description, Scott. Thank you. It's, that's what it feels like in the moment. And we've been really lucky to have some great guests. For anybody who hasn't listened to it, the idea is that the guest picks a record that's important to them. And that's kind of the uh, basis for the discussion. But, you it know, we talk, off. To, yeah. we <laughs> off. We talk yeah. to musicians. We talk to authors. Many of them are promoting some some new projects. So we'll talk about that too. But inevitably, there's a really deep personal component to the conversation, which as evidenced uh, today, it tends to happen when you talk about mm-hmm. music. Yeah, that's a deeply personal thing. Well, Jeff Giles,
0: Scott Malkus, thank you, gentlemen, for being on the Planet LP podcast. Thank, thank you, you, Ted. Ted.
1: My pleasure to be here, man.
0: Yeah. And thank you for listening, dear listener, and lending your ears. I truly appreciate you who take the time to listen to Planet LP. Until next time, take care, and so long.